We have a much more um, palatable tale this time around, I'm going to say. We promise. I am, once again, and always, Austin Thomas, sharing a room via Zoom with just my two best guys, Ethan Bonin, Anton Ryder. How are you boys doing? Doing wonderful. Uh, how How are you? Oh, you know, okay. That's great to hear, though. I'm I Ethan was in my town today and I didn't get to see him, so I'm a little upset. Yeah. But. I didn't see you at all. Something about a, a sinus infection for the ages. <laughs> at least I don't have COVID. At least uh, I don't have COVID. That's that's good. Cheers. That's yeah. good. Cheers to that. Cheers. The universe is just uh, you know what? stepping on Sometimes our... what you got to do is you got to pour yourself a big old hot toddy. And you did. Hot toddy. Like Sharon. <laughs> Ooh. Twain did for her young daughter Eileen. Great segue, man. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. <laughs> well, we will talk more about it right now. So, when we last left Eileen in 1987, she was in Timmins dealing with the affairs of her mother and father's estates after they died in a car accident. You recall? Yeah. Some historians would say that this was a pretty significant event in Shania's life. I think they would. <laughs> it's a pretty big deal. <laughs> some, some, would. some also wouldn't. Yeah, some would not. <laughs> she had to take care of Mark and Daryl as they would have been put in foster care otherwise because their older sister, Jill, had a family of her own. And to make matters worse, while she was in Timmits, she called her boyfriend, John Kim, to talk to him, basically just to call to say hello. But instead of being loving or receptive, He coldly asked why she was calling and then informed her that they were broken up. This was really a rock bottom for Eileen. Yeah, from her biography, it sounds kind of like a complete blindside. Mm -hmm. Like she went home to visit her family and things were fine. And then before before she left, they were fine. And then they just weren't. All right. I'm going to play devil's advocate here. I'm going to step in his defense. There we go. Because at least he didn't wait until they had kids together. You know, got her pregnant and then just decided to leave for groceries and cigarettes and never come back. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. You you truly are playing devil's advocate. You see? We <laughs> appreciate it. I don't know if it's right. I, it, well, I mean, doing it when she's at rock bottom technically is the right thing to do. Yeah. Right? You don't want to deal with that. Can't get any lower, I think. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, no. If you remember, she drove. He drove her back from Toronto to Timmins, which is a ten-hour drive, and then he stayed there for a little bit, and then he went back home, and then he was like, "Well, I guess this is a bachelor." Back. back that's to what the he did. That's how we dealt. That's what he did. Go, guy. <laughs> In her mind, at the very least, she was going to be a Timmins resident forever. Though she had many thoughts of running away and doing missionary work in third world countries just to get away from her shitty life. She literally contemplated joining the Peace Corps just to get away from the responsibility of raising children. <laughs> yeah, you know when you hit like Peace Corps being an actual option, like something <laughs> like has gone. Your life has given you a left turn that you just don't know if you can correct. 
uh, overcorrect as Jerry. Uh, I, that's too dark of a joke. We'll mm, move my on. God. <laughs> don't know about that. Oh, <laughs> but, I don't think but, you even meant to say it. It's, you know, some things they just slip out like verbal diarrhea. And now I have to deal with the consequences. Leave it in. Good Austin. Lord. Leave it in and let me stew okay. in this. <laughs> she called her friend and mentor. Mary Bailey, who herself was a successful country singer up in Canada, who had heard Eileen sing when she was a child and decided that she would help guide and mentor Eileen when she could and acted as her manager after her mother's death. She was kind of a friend of the family because she set up a lot of gigs for Eileen in the past when she was like young, young. Mm -hmm. And her and Sharon stayed, they became pretty good friends from that and stayed in touch. And she's also the person that introduced her to John Bell, the guy we were just talking about that kind of pieced out when her parents died when he when he needed her the most when she needed him the most <laughs> i believe is what i was trying to say yeah you got it it's neither here nor there <laughs> it's just whatever it's whatever man uh eileen told her that she was going to give up singing as it would be impossible with her current predicament but mary told her that she had to keep singing her gift was too good to just tuck away and even offered to help her find some work as a singer she was going to go to some work in the town called huntsville in a resort called deerhurst the resort was a vegas-esque burlesque show and mary said that Eileen should come with her. Now, this concept already seems strange to me in rural Canada, because even now it's only a population of 20,000, which is smaller than Timmins. Mm -hmm. And then you go ahead and throw the fact in that this club is primarily a golf club that does Vegas style burlesque six nights a week on the side. And you have me being very confused. <laughs> it's a weird I concept. It. It's a weird concept. I want to take another moment to emphasize the resort name quick. Cause doesn't Deerhurst seem like a really ominous name for a, a resort where you're supposed to go to have fun. Like hmm. when I think of a Deerhurst, I think of like a rust ridden Ford F-150, not a nice resort where you go to play <laughs> golf and watch burlesque. <laughs> Now, when you when you said that it sounds ominous, I was on board. But the, you lost me with the Ford. I don't. I think he's just trying to paint a nice little picture. You know, because you throw the deer in the back of your Ford F one fifty. I mean, but you got to remember, this is this is like this is Canada. It's a hearse, and it's a it's a hearse. It's a very mm -hmm. oh, that's clever. Okay. That's, I get it now. That's All clever. right. I was taking it a different way. I'm thinking like Resident Evil, an old lodge out in the middle of nowhere. It's called Deerhurst. I mean, it's grown oh, over. Do you know how many towns are called like, like Bearwool and shit like that? Like, it's just random animals and yeah. words. Like, it's just, you know, come stay at like moose, moose hooves. And like, that's like a totally acceptable thing. Like, you just yep. have to take it. This is a, this is a place called Deerhurst in a town called yeah. Huntsville. Like, yeah. you shit. just have to roll with these punches. Track Lodge. Huntsville. Come on down to Beaver Tail Square. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You're right. Like, You're absolutely these right. These could all be real places. You're right. <laughs> I laid the side Burlesque makes Mary. no sense. The burlesque makes zero sense. And it could not even be Vegas-esque at all. It could be Canada's version of Vegas where it's just like, hey, come down and check out the burlesque show. She's got a bunch of, uh, she's got barely any fur on it. It's, it's very, very, uh, it's very risque. Only one fur. <laughs> you can see her ankles. <laughs> I don't, I mean, they're not, they're not like Mennonites. Yeah, they're not more, yeah, <laughs> Quakers or something. <laughs> 
I don't know what they're doing up there. I've never oh, been. Jesus. Okay, me neither, actually. Yeah, you could be right. Well, now that we've covered Deerhurst, <laughs> we should probably keep going. <laughs> yes, Eileen decided to go with Mary, and once she got there, Brian Aries, the musical director of the resort, gave her an interview. He liked her, and so she got the job with a wage that allowed her to move herself and her siblings down to Huntsville. About $45,000 in 1988 money. I'm doing I'm doing Lord's work here. I threw this into a Canadian dollar inflation calculator. That's a solid <laughs> 88000 in Canadian dollars now. I also decided to mm. convert that to inflated value into a U.S. dollar value now, and it converts okay. to about $69,000 a year. I'd say that's not very good for an acting single mother. No, it definitely sounds Three? impressive. What? Of what? How many? $69,000. Uh, no, be how many kids was she taking care of? Two boys? Four, it'd be four total oh, if yeah. Carrie yeah. Ann went with yeah. them, which I think they did. Yeah. So it'd be Eileen, Mark, Daryl, and Carrie Ann if she went. But she's probably getting, I think she's getting pretty close to 18. So she could have went and done her own thing. Yeah. Yeah. But at the very least, the two boys were with their phone. Yep, that's not much. <laughs> not, not a lot of money. Not so, very yes. much. And what they did with that money was they bought a small house that didn't have any running water, but they made the best of it. Uh, but they obviously weren't huge fans. But this was about like where their houses were up in Timmins or in, in Sudbury when Sharon and Jerry were still alive. So like, it wasn't a huge deal to have this house versus, you know, the house where they like had the maggot carpet or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But she described this one as paying to camp like a camp house because they had, they could only sleep and cook in there, basically. That, they had to clean. That's kind of fun. <laughs> it's fun for like, for a minute. Fun if days. you want to. Yeah. When you're not like have to do it to live. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but they so they had to clean themselves and their clothes in the river out back, and then they had to use a bush as a toilet, and they had there was a small creek that ran in front of the house that they had to brush their teeth in, which sucks. Mm. But you know what doesn't suck? <laughs> what that mansion in Sweden? She's gonna move to eventually. Hey, buddy, come on, you're 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 teasing too far ahead. <laughs> what about the lodge in New Zealand? Oh, How about that one? <laughs> oh man, she. It's just permanent residences. Oh yeah, everywhere. It's in wild. Ten years, and God bless her for it. It is wild. I don't understand how this living arrangement exists in the eighties. Like this feels like it should be like a Whalen mm -hmm. living arrangement in the thirties instead of eighties. But I'm pretty sure Whalen was born in like had, the forties, wasn't he? I don't know. I just spitball in there. I was off the top. I don't remember. <laughs> All right, that's 30s, fine. That's 40s, fine. That's fine. Go ahead. Four. <laughs> it's pretty close. <laughs> I'm pretty sure Beethoven had better living arrangement, though, like in the 1700s. Uh, I'm pretty sure you're actually correct. Yeah, I think mm -hmm. that he at least had a bathroom. Yeah. yeah. Like, he didn't treat it very well. He didn't live very like well on his own. <laughs> well, that's choice, all. That's all Beethoven. But he had better yeah. options. That's all Beethoven and Carl Jr. <laughs> <God damn. laughs> Bringing that back. Oh, there he is. <laughs> God, those Italian burgers. <laughs> mm, so tasty. Uh, Eileen worked and dated boys in the area, and so for the next few years, she hung out with them. She took care of her brothers, who were troublemakers and a bit of a handful. And then she sang at the burlesque shows at Deerhurst, which is something she was pretty uncomfortable with at first. First, she knew she was a good singer, but it was such a different style than what she was used to. She was used to this country or even rock, but these were show tunes and the clothes were more revealing than anything she had worn before. Because remember, she was quite the tomboy, liked to wear these oversized sweatshirts and she was actually pretty uncomfortable with her body through most of this time. Five costume changes a <laughs> night, feather boas, three inch heels, very different environment mm -hmm. than what she was doing before. Yep. Uh, you are... 
You are describing the wonderful world of quick changes in theater, where a performer would run off stage, <laughs> strip down to their underwear as fast as they could, only to be shoved into another outfit by a stagehand. And I got to tell you, what a stressful time it was for everyone involved. <laughs> I hated it. Yeah, I can only imagine what like, like what, what role were you in that? You got like, oh, I didn't do it. I stayed oh, okay. far away from that. But watching the people do it, it's like run off stage. You have 40 seconds to change oh out of this, gosh. you know, like Joseph in the Technicolor dream coat, big outfit to something completely different. You have no time. And so they just like rip it off you and then throw you in a new outfit. And then you get back on stage and, and, and you're winded and you're tired. And then you have to go sing and dance back on stage. And that's literally what I lean had to do and it sounds horrible and you hope something that was pinned on or button doesn't come loose sticks <laughs> yeah it was done quickly <laughs> i saw more performers both male and female in in thongs than i've ever seen in my whole life and will ever see in my whole life again that's showbiz baby showbiz that is freaking showbiz <laughs> the one thing though that she did here that sounded pretty cool and she enjoyed a lot more was there was a piano lounge and I guess after each performance she would have to go and do like a show in the lounge for a few hours where she mm. was just basically sitting on a stool singing along to you know more laid back numbers yeah just some jazzy stuff yeah I don't know if it's keeping it classy <laughs> just, no, a, probably not just a smoke filled <laughs> bar where you've just got the soft jazz piano she's cocktail dress she's got the cigarette like holder thing yeah. like the Cruella de Vil <laughs> like the long stem yeah holds it like a, like she's like backwards from where you're supposed man. to <laughs> that's a different vibe but yeah okay <laughs> you just pick the first song that has piano just, in the name I just wanted to pick the one that everyone hates in the piano bar is what I did oh, All right. I respect it yeah and there's always someone that requests it <laughs> oh, always always yeah. So another big issue for her at Deerhurst were the other girls because it was a very cutthroat atmosphere and the singers and dancers loved to spread rumors and gossip about who was sleeping with who and how so-and-so got a promotion usually by sleeping with uh, whoever they did. And it didn't bode well for Eileen because she had a short affair with a member of the resort staff who was dating a fellow performer. <laughs> they weren't, I mean, they weren't married or dating. Or they were just dating. It's fine. I don't think it even happened also i'm Whoa. about to say in a sentence that's a hot take so why don't we get there yes they put a target on her head and although it never showed on stage everyone was professional on stage they were made for a lot of tension backstage so this is from her autobiography so i guess you take it with a grain of salt but according to her it's a rumor and everyone like involved verified it was a rumor she doesn't know who started it but the prime suspect would be a lady that she uh, re was replacing as the lead singer when she mm. came on, who she referred to as Sheila in her book. Sheila. She did, obviously didn't want to give the real name, but Sheila was not happy about sharing the spotlight. And obviously, once a rumor like this spreads, anything you say to deny it just makes you sound more guilty to those people that have determined you did that. So, yep. I don't. It I, might not even happen, Ethan. I I bet Eileen just hit her with the old good one defense. It's pretty <laughs> sus when you say that. Yeah, it's, that pretty much gives it away. <laughs> I mean, the picture that's painted is very. It's something out of a Lifetime movie where somebody like comes home early, opens the door, and 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 they're on the couch naked, and it's like a big dramatic scene. So I don't know, it could have not happened. It could have happened. <laughs> 
Regardless whether she did or did not sleep with a member of the staff, things were tense because mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. even if it wasn't sexually charged or sexually sexual related, uh, people really wanted the top spot because the more you were on stage, the more chance you had to be on stage more, you know. And, and so when you were kicked off from the top spot, it made it hard to gain your spot back. The resort let Eileen perform solos on stage. Like, that's what I'm saying. She got to perform by herself on stage, yeah. which made her a target for everyone else. Where she sang some of her favorite songs in both English and French. She knew how to sing in both languages fluently. And she would also jump up and do covers for a rock band in the area. Doing rock covers, the most popular of which was Pour Some Sugar on Me by Def Leppard. I don't know why they didn't get a cameo of Shania and Coyote Ugly. Because that's a freaking blockbuster. Oh, God. God. I've never actually seen the whole movie, but I have been to a Coyote Ugly bar in Oklahoma City. (laughs) Not the original, not as good. So it's a good movie. It's a it, fun movie. It's a good movie. Yeah, it's a good movie. Yeah, is that <laughs> is that Hillary Swank in that one? Sure. All right. Cool. I don't good. know. Leanne Rimes is in it. I know that. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's because they couldn't afford Shania when that sucker came out. Yeah. That's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's it. That's just it. <laughs> in 1989, she met Paul Budok. I think that's how you say it. Maybe it's Bulldog. Doesn't matter. A construction worker from Timmins who moved to Huntsville. Bulldog. To- we'll call him Paul Bulldog. Bulldog. Paul Bulldog. Bulldog. <laughs> <laughs> she met. Uh, he was a construction worker from Timmins who moved to Huntsville to work at Deerhurst. She and him were pretty close before, so when he moved to town, they began a relationship together that seemed like the only thing that could break them up would be a uh, fit, handsome, rich, South African-raised, Zambian-born producer with long, (laughs) blonde, curly hair. Uh, But what were the chances that she was going to actually meet someone like that? I'd say pretty slim. I can only think of one person that fits the description. One person out of about five and a half billion people. The chances Mm -hmm. are pretty slim. Yeah, Very slim. I'd say pretty slim. We just talked about Def Leppard, right? Yeah, we did. I put it in the script. There's a little bit of foreshadowing. (laughs) Very clever. Very clever, Anton. Very clever. (laughs) So here they were. Yeah, pat yourself there a little bit. At Deerhurst. They were here at Deerhurst working and loving each other. Though the politics of the resort were still an issue, the management really enjoyed Eileen and made sure she was taken care of, even going as far as to give Mark and Daryl a job at the resort as well as busboys. But after a scuzzy manager made an advance on her that she declined, he threatened them. Then followed through with firing them. It was really more of an assault than an advance, I'd say, because he cornered yeah. her in a cooler. Yeah, he ba- he basically said she owed him for hiring her brothers, and no reports on who this guy is or what became of him. But I think ditch padding would be a great career. <laughs> yeah, you know, he could. I hear they're hiring driftwood in most major rivers in the United States. You could make a good piece of driftwood. And in today's job climate, not a bad gig. <laughs> no, yeah. Depends, depends yeah. on if they match your 401k, but man. Yeah, say, does that got good benefits? Let's make this guy a LinkedIn and get him there. <laughs> yeah. So Eileen still had her job yeah. even after her brothers got fired. And after they brought in a rich old man named John Katowski to invest in the place, they agreed to build on a huge pavilion with tennis courts and a massive theater for live productions. I decided to figure out why this town had such an extravagant resort, so I did a little bit of a dive on Huntsville. Apparently, Huntsville is like an extremely popular tourist town in Canada and uh, even hosted the G8 Summit in Huh. 2010. There's a lot of moolah in them woods, huh? <laughs> yeah, it's not too far north of 
of Toronto. And I feel like if people are like, I'm going to go check out the, the the woods, the deep Canadian bush, and they just go to Huntsville because, again, the name is Huntsville. Like, you, <laughs> you know, it, you just go. feel like you got to bring your rifle there. <laughs> I want to check out the the woods and the bush, but I also want to see a burlesque show. So I'm going to. You got it. <laughs> the only one place to go. Come on down to the Deerhurst. <laughs> So once it was built, get some beer and bratwurst. <laughs> Wayne Brady makes his return. <laughs> oh, thank you, thank you. Yeah, thanks, man. Appreciate it. <laughs> uh, once the theater was built at the Deerhurst, they wanted to perform a show there. So Eileen suggested that John Kim, her ex-boyfriend, who, if you remember, we talked about, had once been a conductor for the New York Philharmonic and had worked on Broadway in some capacity since he was 18. All right. Quick clarification sake here. All right. John Kim Bell, because I, I did see John Kim and John Bell. It's kind of confusing for yeah. my little brain. But uh, I think he went by Kim Bell. If yeah. I'm he was right. he was Canada's first Indigenous Symphony Orchestra conductor, the founder of the country's precedent-setting National Aboriginal Achievement Foundation, now known as Inspire, spelled I-N-D Spire, like Indian Spire, hmm. and yeah, and the National Aboriginal Achievement Awards, now known as the Inspire Awards, and one of Canada's leading energy resource consultants representing First Nations. He's like actually super important outside of this story. But it's not relevant for much longer. Outside of the story, yeah. He's, he's definitely not an insignificant person. He's just not very significant and about a page. Mm, yep, yep. Which is just fine. Yes, they agreed to her suggestion. And so he was brought in to build a show from scratch. He got to basically write and and uh, compose and 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 direct or conduct a show with no financial restraints because of Mr. Katowski. I'm sure it was a super casual, friendly, awesome environment working with the guy that ghosted you immediately after your parents died. <laughs> ghosted you him. You were Austin. <laughs> He was busy managing the National Aboriginal Achievement Foundation that he founded in 1985. He didn't sign up to be a dad. He's a bachelor, okay? That's true, you know, I, That's true Austin. Okay. My God, I, I think it could have been handled with a little more tact, but this is coming from Ethan, the king of tact, so I'll take your stance on this. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> uh, well, I don't want to make this too serious, but I do think that the relationship that they had honestly wasn't that bad. Because as we've seen, Eileen can be very forgiving <sighs> and uh, she she always sees the best in people. That is true. And so uh, through all the things she's been through, John Kim just saying like, we're not together anymore. Not not the worst thing. Unfortunate. It's unfortunate. Not the worst by a lot. She's been through some shit. She's got some thick skin. Wildly successful. She knew that he could help her further her career. So that's kind of why she brought him on or suggested him because she knew that he was talented. So bring him on. Make me the star. And we'll kind of we'll rise to the top together. Yeah. So Katowski would foot the bill, which ended up coming out to about two million dollars for all this. And so John Kim got to work. John Kim Bell uh, and Eileen was helping with that as well as still performing in the burlesque show. And she now wanted to record a record as well. Her goal was to still be a performer. And now she was so close to Toronto again with it being just over two hours away. She knew that she needed material that she could show to 
labels. So she got together with Harry Hindi, a Motown producer, who heard her and decided he was going to help her. I tried to look into Harry a little more, and he was an A&R guy for Mer- Mercury Nashville, who he was trying to switch over to producing, and you would think uh, doing Shania's first real album would catapult someone's career, What you know, whether that album did good or not, just having the name there. Right. But uh, um, it's the only big thing he had under his belt. And uh, he doesn't even have a Wikipedia page. So, RIP, man. We could change that. <laughs> oh, we can make one. We'll make him one. Died in 2008 of a long battle with cancer. I found a short list of other authors, no, geez, other artists he produced. Uh, I'd never heard of any of them, but I put them on here. So, that's just for us. So right. It's uh, Reno, Charity Brown, Copper Penny, The Rays, and Veronica Bellevue. I listened to their music, never heard of any of them. Never heard of any of them. Nope. That's okay. Yeah, I haven't either, and I've noted it, and since you said it's just for us, I'll cut it like you wanted, and they won't get to hear it. <laughs> yeah, just, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Austin, Austin, the stickler is throwing the hammer down. You fucking asshole, I'll kill you. I'm breaking your balls. Yeah, it will be very telling as to why he's unknown in just a little bit. He wanted her to do a country album, but she wanted to do a rock album. And so after some disagreement and discussion, she won out and they headed out to a cabin in the middle of the woods to produce with some musicians. And then they headed to Wesley Sounds in McClear Place to record. There were two recording studios in Toronto. And then in October 1989, Eileen and Harry signed a producer's agreement, and she got to work trying to sell the record they had made. It found its way to plenty of labels, but they all turned it down, saying the feel of the album wasn't right. They said it felt like an album of 20 years ago, but not in a good way. Not one mention. (laughs) This album is very unknown. I feel like I need to just explain that. Like Most people are going to be like, well, you're you're talking about the woman in me? No, I'm talking about an album called Beginnings that was written that in, you the, haven't heard of. in the late 80s and didn't come out until 1999. So that's the album I'm talking about. Uh, <laughs> they also got promotional photos and videos done, but it was all for naught. It didn't really matter. And then seven months later, the resort show, which was called A Touch of Broadway, was released with Eileen as the star. And everyone who saw her said that they knew that she was going to be famous. The show was basically a mashup of different acts from Broadway and live concerts with songs by Stephen Sondheim, famous for his play Sweeney Todd, and helping out on the lyrics and music of West Side Story. There was also songs from Cats and Lionel Richie, and then Eileen herself even sang the song Wind Beneath My Wings by Bette Midler. The show itself wasn't really anything good, but Eileen shined like few others at Deerhurst ever had. Like few others ever had, Sheila. <laughs> In these videos, she is so hot. She is smoking. Like <laughs> this will be a reoccurring thing. Oh, she's so gonna eat. Just wait till we get to the, oh, the next episode. I'm gonna be like <laughs> rock hard the entire episode. I don't know Solid. what we're supposed to do with this, Ethan. This wow. is a kid show. Nah, yeah. it's a family show. The kids Mark are gonna learn. This. Today, PG. <laughs> yeah, she is, she's a very attractive woman. Uh, mm, but yeah. as great as Eileen yes. was, Katowski was hemorrhaging money paying for the edition, the show, and Shania's recording. I think Deerhurst actually was through Katowski was actually paying for the recording. So they, at the time, technically owned everything since they were paying for it. But 
Katowski couldn't handle it anymore. So at once, he just basically pulled the plug on it all, and then he pieced out of there and really went under the radar. Like nobody could find him. <laughs> well, I well I found an article from the Ottawa Sun mm. from 2012. Okay, and he he and his wife were interviewed, and they got a bit of a different story. Uh, uh, so he well not they're just singing a different song is what we'll say. Okay, yeah. he refers. To her management as those who stole her away from me <laughs> while while recounting a story of him trying to go talk to her at one of her shows around the time in so probably like 2011 or something. And he uses the he uses that phrase, those who stole her from me, while explaining uh-huh. that they assigned seven security guards just to him to keep him from talking to her. It's, bon- it's bonkers. <laughs> hey, you know what they say? History is written by the victors, and I think he lost. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah he, was the, he was a very rich man, but yeah, it turns out money just can't, can't buy anything, can't yep. buy everything. Yep. I can't remember if it was him, and this is, I, I don't want to be accusatory. I don't know much about Mr. Katowski, but I can't remember if it was him or another person at Deerhurst that was like very, very flirtatious, like mm. very- um, forward with their money and what their money could do. I can't remember if it was him or someone else, but like a salty, yeah, like basically like kind of touchy feely, like oh, I, you know, like I guess how much yeah. money I have. I'm gonna touch your thigh, but not like in that, and not that clear cut. It was like you know, well, I don't want to go buy you a dress or whatever. Like the dress she wore, like this is just an example of like how much money he spent. The dress she wore for the for the touch of Broadway, it was five thousand dollars. That's Jesus. how much just her dress cost for it. Like he was just willing to put any Jesus amount of money. But I, I again, I don't want to say it was him, but I yeah. think it was him who was very, very forward with uh, with being flirtatious with the performers. I can promise you, he's not mentioned once in her autobiography. So I don't know. Yeah, yeah, this is all from the <laughs> other book. Uh, so everything. Yeah. The whole theater, everything was built by that point. So it was kind of fine that he kind of pieced out. He kind of done what he wanted to. But the thing that hurt with him leaving was that Eileen's career was now stalling because she had no money to pay for anything. So the album she wrote was called Beginnings, and it wouldn't even be released until 1999 without any fanfare. And you can only find it for streaming on Amazon Music. And it basically is available nowhere else unless you want to buy it on CD or I think they have it on vinyl for like $75. Um, But it's a very generic like rock album with with. I, I put rock country. It's not. It's just rock. It's just like a generic 80s rock album. Mm, mm. Not mentioned once in her autobiography. Or any of the three documentaries I watched. <laughs> yeah. it's it, Like I said, it's very, <laughs> it's very under the radar. It's, yep. <laughs> not, yeah, it's, it's weird how little it's talked about. But that's okay. So after the album failed to gain any traction, Mary bought back the publishing rights for this album and basically her... her or works going forward if she wanted to for $5,000. And then luckily, uh, I, I'm going to say luckily here, Eileen was on her own once again to do what she wanted. It kind of, it was kind of a jumping off point. It was scary to dive into the abyss, but it obviously works out for her in the end. In September 1990, with Mark and Daryl graduated from high school and doing their own thing, and her contract at Deerhurst coming to an end, she decided that she had done everything that she could do in Huntsville, and so she would have to look not 145 miles south in Toronto, but rather 880 miles south in the country music capital of the world, 
Nashville, Tennessee. She must have some really nice binoculars to see that far. That was so quiet. What was, it? <laughs> what was that? <laughs> so quiet. Here, what was let me, it? We get you another one here. Yeah, what yeah, was yeah. It? play another one. You can just edit the second one in. Oh, why is it not working? Do it again. Do it again. Do it again. Was it a badumps? No. Was it a badumptis? Probably a toilet flushing. There's <laughs> <laughs> a gunshot. How about that? How about that? Ethan, you get three bad jokes before we finish the, before we just kick you off the episode. Hey, I, I, that's, that's... And then we'll just like, we'll just have the computer read your parts for the rest of the episode. So it'll be Can like, I... Nashville, Tennessee. She must have had a really nice pair of binoculars. I would, it'll be great. I would pay good money to write a script for you guys to do it in just computer speak. <laughs> Be fun. I would pay for that. Uh, that's a that's a that's a solid dad joke. You've got three. Now you've got two. Yes. <laughs> so yep. she was scouted by Dick Frank, a lawyer in Nashville, who was a friend of Mary Bailey. So he came up to Deerhurst to see Eileen sing and was blown away by her. All right, am I the only person that noticed that this man has two names that, in a roundabout way, could be synonymous with a penis, or is that just me? Hmm. Uh, I think Tony is right there with you because I've seen his name put as Richard Frank every. Else. You <laughs> clearly did not read Shania Twain, the biography by Robin Egger then, because that's got more dicks than Willem Dafoe. <laughs> that's just dick, dick in my book. There's, pl- there's plenty of dick in that book. Uh, <laughs> you would be right. So <laughs> Dick felt that she not only had the voice, but she could move around and she looked at home and very comfortable on stage. A far cry from the incidents of her peeing herself or nearly peeing herself of 15 years ago. And to really sell her talent, Dick paid Dean Malton, one of the short-lived ex-boyfriends who was the sound tech at the Deerhurst, to record an EP for Eileen, something more in line with what Nashville wanted to hear. It was clear by this point that the tracks that would become the album beginnings were DOA. They weren't doing anything. So they decided to record some of the album with Eileen singing in a stairwell in the theater to add natural reverb. I think they also tried to use bathroom stalls as uh, vocal booths, but I don't hmm. I don't know if that made the cut or not. Hey, didn't, hmm. didn't, didn't they do something like this on Dreams, Fleetwood Mac? Uh, I can't remember which song it was. I don't think so. I don't think that they... Or maybe it was Piano? Well, they went into the theater for piano. That's what it was. Yeah, yeah. they did like a ballroom no. recording of song. No. It's a little different than they recording went in into a hallway the or a theater stall. at the University of California to record, uh, what's the song? Songbird. They recorded Songbird in the Didn't theater. Did I just say that? Oh, you said a ballroom. Take it easy. It's not a ballroom. <laughs> okay. You're right. They are different. I did. I, okay. You're right. You're Good. right. Good. I think I said Songbird. I was starting yeah, to say it's, Songbird. It's fine. Uh, yeah, no, actually, bathroom, <laughs> bathroom stalls are great for reverb as well. Uh, my my stepfather plays guitar every night, and he does it in the bathroom every night of our house or of their house because it's got that natural reverb. Sounds really nice. Nice. Kind of fun. In all, they recorded seven songs, which were dubbed the basement tapes because some of the recording was done in Dean's basement. They eventually made it to Nashville and back to Dick. And so he showed the tapes to some execs at Mercury Records who were also very impressed. And honestly, I don't know why I can't find these songs anywhere. These ones are even more hidden than beginning. So I don't know <laughs> what, what, what's happening. Against all, all the same. Even more hidden. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, one of the most notable people that was uh, in this group was Nora Wilson. And he produced some Reba albums and he co-wrote with George Jones. So big deal. Mm. Big deal. Yep. 
Pretty big deal. Yeah, they had never met Eileen in person, the execs for Mercury, but they flew her down to record some other tracks to see if she was the real deal. They liked her. So in late 1990, Eileen signed a five-album deal with Mercury Nashville. And in the deal, Eileen got $20,000 as an advance to help her live while she recorded. And it was also at this time that the label suggested that Eileen Twain wasn't a great name for a country artist. And so they suggested that she change it. Uh, Yeah. Art's about being who you are. You have to express what is important to you and always remain true to yourself unless someone in a suit says they'll help you maybe get a shitload of money. But for being someone else, then you be someone else. Is there like any just single artist, not not band member, but just a single artist who has just kept their name? Mm. Like I think maybe Billie Eilish is the same. Maybe, like, Harry Nielsen. It just seems like most people change their name. I'll say Nielsen. <laughs> Toby Keith. Okay. I don't know. Toby Keith may have. <laughs> Toby <laughs> Keith may have. Stevie but Nicks. Then, don't think changed. Uh, all right. I guess. Yeah. She's a single performer. But I mean, we look was at. was born that way. We look at. Um, 50 Cent was born as 50 Cent. Give me a break. Yeah. Uh, I mean, John Denver was Alan Dusendorf yep. for a long time of his life. Uh, Dusendorf. Hey, come on. Uh, I don't know. It doesn't matter. But most, but what I'm saying is a lot of artists change their name yeah. to stage names. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes you might not think you have a choice if you're- That's true. That yeah. new person. In, yeah. yeah. When, they, when they've got like a, a, a contract right in front of you, you'll say yes to just about anything. And a lot of artists do. And a lot of artists get screwed over for it. We've talked about some of them. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so she could choose any name she wanted, but they had to give the final approval. She thought about it for a little bit and decided that she wanted to keep her last name to always honor her parents. And so that left the first name. She thought back to a woman who had worked wardrobe for the Touch of Broadway show that had a unique name that Eileen really liked. Shania. The woman claimed that she was an Ojibwe Indian herself, just like Jerry, and that Shania meant on my way in Ojibwe, though that has been thoroughly debunked, with the exception of Mary saying that silver in Ojibwe was pronounced Zunaya. So pretty close, but uh, not really that close. Mm -mm. But I looked and the word Shania just yields no results in the Ojibwe People's Dictionary. Man, I find it so funny because in her... Uh, behind the music documentary, she still maintained that it meant on my way. The direct quote was, it floats so well and it's Indian. <laughs> really leaned in as long as she could. Yeah. Well, in, in her book as well, she maintains that. And in Egger's book, he says there's no phrase in Ojibwe that means this. Uh, but and OK, this is according to Wikipedia. So we'll I'll take our spoonful of salt here. Apparently, <laughs> <laughs> the phrase Ani Iowa means Someone on the way, so Not whoever even close. <laughs> so whoever wrote this Wikipedia page decided it was probably that someone likely didn't fully understand the language and decided if they say Shania, it could mean she's on the way. Was it worth the eighty words to explain? You, know you decide. What? I'm gonna I'm gonna forward this decision directly to the listener. Let us know. DM us and just tell us how dumb this this part segment was we are on and five at gmail.com was it helpful but all the same it stuck with her enough that's that's what she ended up going with and once it was okay from mercury eileen twain was gone and at least publicly shania twain was born 
Nashville was going through a bit of a transition from artists like classic George Strait, George Jones, Loretta Lynn, and Willie Nelson to newer artists like Tim McGraw, Alan Jackson, and the 90s king of country, Garth Brooks. I'm never not going to bring up his emo rocker alter ego, Chris Gaines, that he literally made an entire behind the music documentary about and aired it <laughs> and then just abandoned the idea it's great. immediately. It's great. <laughs> I love Listen, it. Listen, <laughs> there's one single off one of the Chris Gaines album that's not bad. It's not bad. It's good music. Not bad. Yeah. So, this new country it had a fresher feel with more rock influences than the artists of past generations. Pair that with country music television or CMT, which was trying to be the country alternative to MTV, and country was becoming a real mainstream genre, not just for rural and country folks. Now this country I love is falling <laughs> under attack. Why this sucker punch came flying in That's, uh, somewhere in the back? It's been a Don't long 24 hours. <laughs> we salute you. We man. have been <laughs> singing this song almost nonstop. And it Ethan, <laughs> God bless you, an actual veteran, could not be more furious with us, and we love it. <laughs> I think. I hate well, it. I, I Ethan, hate do it. you think Toby Keith is a bit of a sellout for doing this? Mm-mm. Nope. Might be pandering just a little bit. <laughs> what? Just a Here's little. what I say: How <laughs> many USO tours did you do? Yeah, how many have you done? I got to see. Idiot. I got to see uh, some how much WWE money have you wrestlers. Made off the back of our I got boys. to. <laughs> honestly, honestly, that's awesome. Got to see Candlebox. I yeah, got okay. to see Candlebox. Yeah, okay, it's fine. It's whatever. It's no Toby. We'll we'll move on. <laughs> Shania moved down to Nashville with Paul so that she could record when the time came. Over a year after getting signed in 1992. Harold Shedd, a producer who regularly worked with Mercury, who had recorded bands like Alabama and Reba McIntyre, and had just finished up with Billy Ray Cyrus on his hit Achy Breaky Heart. And he would go on to have quite a long list of successful artists. He wanted to be the one to produce the album. We'll put a boot in your <laughs> ass. It's the American way. That is right. Ladies and gentlemen, the king of the USO Tour, Toby Keith, also got his start entertaining our boys overseas with Shed. Hand it. Gotta give him a hand. Gotta give him a hand. Yeah. You know, Thank you. We salute you. Some would say braver than any soldier. Yeah. Some would didn't say have it. to serve in the military. His dad did. He served. And he's been on the front lines more than most people in the service on his tours. So he you know served I heard, in I heard, ways I heard that dad lost an military eye. Military people would not even understand. So they wouldn't get it. <laughs> God. Even know how humid it what gets over to to That's you know good good for him, I guess. <laughs> Oh, oh man, I am. A, what we a, are just, we are just ruffling Ethan's <laughs> feathers, and I love it. What an American! God bless you. Happy what Veterans an American. Day, Toby Keith. Happy <laughs> Veterans Day. Thank me for my service. Thank you, Ethan. Didn't have to work. <laughs> Go get your free Golden Corral now. Uh, yes. Yeah, so having Harold Shed there would keep the money in house and make the process more streamlined. The biggest shock for Shania was learning that she was no longer a big fish in a small pond. She was now a small fish in an ocean. But we'll learn that this little fish is about to make some big waves. <laughs> that's just fine. That's just fine. Yeah, I feel like that's just a perfect tagline for this whole episode. But we'll learn that she will learn that this little fish is about to make some big waves. <laughs> Great. Thanks, myself. Ethan. Thanks, Ethan. Boom. <laughs> 
Yeah, she was expecting to get there and to have the city welcome her with open arms. But when she got there, she realized that everyone in Nashville is an incredible musician. Not just singers, but every guitarist, every drummer, every keyboardist, every banjo player, every every freaking trombone player was in just absolutely incredible. Mm-hmm. And they were all mm-hmm. desperately trying to make it. Yeah, it's like that analogy from high school athletics to college athletics. You're, you're no longer the fastest kid on the field. Everyone is now the fastest kid on the field. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You find out you're not nearly as special or even as talented as you may have thought you are a lot of the time. Yep. Yeah. Welcome to the welcome to the real world. Yeah, yeah. to make matters worse, <laughs> Shed and Mercury weren't willing to even try out Shania's original songs. Out of the 10 songs on the album, four of them were actually written by other artists and then given to her when they were rejected by the original artist. They had people who were at the ready to create radio-friendly songs. They had a formula on what worked and a team of tried-and-true writers that could create songs that had the right hooks, melodies, and lyrics to make their money back and then maybe turn a small profit. And honestly, I uh, I can't blame them for it. Okay, I'll do it. <laughs> you yeah. blame them for it? <laughs> I blame them for it. <laughs> hey, man, they are just trying to make their money back. And the way you do that is you find a formula and you ride that formula. And so, we'd like to formally announce that we are changing our format to a... True crime podcast because there is not nearly enough of them. I thought we were doing conspiracy theories <laughs> all Twice of it. Twice a wrap, week. Wrap it up, baby. Wrap it up. We're wrapping it all into one. And we're calling this Murder She Spoke. <laughs> oh my God, man. Good. Good. You're sarcasm uh, your way into a gold mine. <laughs> can't wait. Uh, yeah. The way that Mercury saw it, they hired Shania to sing the songs they provided. They were not interested in her songs, just her voice. Very similar to the uh, Waylon scenario that he had with his musicians that he wanted to record, but they wouldn't let him in Nashville. Yeah, it's really clicky. The album was recorded at Music Mill Studios for about a year, with Shania basically showing up just to sing the same way that the studio musicians did with their parts. It was just a hands-off approach, and it was something that she was not used to. She was so surprised by the way that things worked. Uh, She must have expected that everyone else would be as well, because in her book, she felt the need to explain the process of shopping for songs to the extent of explaining, you're not actually walking through the store with a cart, which I found super eye-opening. You like you thought oh. that she did. Like huh. She went to like the, the song shopping store. How else do you shop for a song? Yeah. Good question, man. Huh. That's a good question. Listen, Shania is just writing for the people. She does it in her book. She does it in her albums. All right, Austin. <laughs> writing for Joe, everybody. Good for her. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you got it. I get it. it. I the, get it. The album was also done on the cheap, only costing about $125,000 in total, which we will get into how much her next album costs in comparison. It's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And while she was in the studio, Mercury bought out AM Records, which we've mentioned a couple times because it was created by Herb Alpert and Jerry Moss. And they were the people who signed Waylon Jennings. Hey, he's like God. He comes in groups of threes. He always shows up, man. He always shows up. They were also the people who went to go check out Van Halen, and then they uh, got turned down. Uh, Van, they they oh, turned yeah. Van Halen down. Rather. Passed on him. Yep. Uh, so when this merger was complete, Harold Shedd 
took care of A&M, and then a guy named Luke Lewis took over Mercury. They decided that they would work together on the album, which added even more tension and struggle as they didn't see eye to eye. And then on top of that, Harold and Lewis were both running labels of their own, but Mercury owned A&M, but Harold was the head producer. So it caused a real power struggle in the studio. You know, a lot of lot of ins, a lot of outs, a lot of what have you. <laughs> yeah. Mm. yeah, exactly. But they got through it, and on April 20th, 1993, Shania Twain was released. That's what the one that brought you and you can't go wrong. It's a pretty good album. It's a fun little album. It's okay. Yeah, it's whatever. It's okay little album. It, it's 100,000 <laughs> copies album. I think it sold yeah. later. I mm-hmm. think it sold more later, but that's all right. Mm-hmm. It did. The cover featured Shania standing by a fire with a wolf on the other side. It was taken <clears> up in the Timmins area per Shania's request, where she even picked the location herself and then walked there using her grandpa's snowshoes. And then she got the lumber herself and she built her own fire. And I'm guessing that she also lured the wolf in for the photo, but that hasn't been verified. Mm. Okay, so Tony, and behind the music, uh, she actually trapped skin and baited the lure with a rabbit breast. Wow. It, uh, it's an old Ojibwe tradition passed down from generation to generation. Some of the first domesticated dogs were actually lured in this fashion and domesticated that way. <laughs> Ethan. But no, it stands. You can't just say things. <laughs> you can't just say things, man. <laughs> but I did hear she couldn't catch a rabbit, actually, and had to use a squirrel. Oh, I think it's very oh. funny that you think it's an old Ojibwe tradition of hunting. Yeah. Of just hunting. <laughs> like, yeah. What she did is she, like, caught an animal and then used it as bait. Well, I did, the I left out the, did this thing called bait. I left out the ritual part. I left out the ritual side of it. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's when you get into. Yeah. That's when you get into like a little bit of like racist terms. So yeah, it starts to get a little offensive over there. Yeah, <laughs> I'm furious yeah. right now. <laughs> but we'll leave it there. The yeah. album didn't do much, charting at number 24 in Canada, and did nothing in the U.S. To date, it has sold over a million copies, but it was a slow burn. And her later work actually helped to retroactively boost sales. And through the next year or so, it only sold a hundred thousand copies. Multiply that by a thousand, and you get a much bigger number. Like an almost unreasonable I feel like this is the perfect time to bring it up. I was wrong. She did not sell 100 million albums. I looked it up today. She only sold 84 million albums. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) Jesus. So someone somewhere along the line rounded up because I also, I saw 100 million somewhere. Yeah. But only At that point, it's just a clerical area. Just the 16 million <laughs> albums is arbitrary. <laughs> it's uh, a diamond it, amount worth, but it just doesn't really matter at that so point. Insignificant, yeah. <laughs> They released three singles from the album and filmed videos for them as well. In the video for the biggest single, What Made You Say That, Shania decided to wear a halter top dress, dancing on the beach with some beefy hunk. It was a very timid video by today's standards, but in 1993, CMT refused to air the video because it was too promiscuous. You kidding me? A woman bearing her midriff? Hmm. Unacceptable in this one nation under God. <laughs> oh, they just didn't want anyone else to see it, and I thought they could keep the tape for themselves you know these these, creeps these these hollywood creeps (laughs) these old wrinkly (laughs) creeps it eventually did get played but it was too little too late another video dance with the one that brought you was actually directed by sean penn actor sean penn i think director obviously director as well after he saw her first video and decided that he wanted to direct a video for her pro bono (laughs) 
man, I started looking up seeds for my am Sam because mm-hmm. I wanted to put a quote in here, but I, I, yeah, no. People I, allude should not. I hadn't seen it in a long time, and I ended up no. watching about thirty minutes worth of scenes, just like laughing, <sighs> cringing from it's uh, from how much he. I don't know. Committed to the role, I think we'll say. <laughs> you could say that. No, you, yeah, actually, you know word. what? No, I'm not going to say I'm that. Committed need... is not the right word for that. Oh. <laughs> he did it's, something. Uh, but... I'm going to need a quick quick rundown. Quick rundown. Uh, synopsis. I've never Go. seen I Am Sam. I, uh, uh-huh. I have to be it's honest like with most... you. I have never seen it either, but when I was reading the script, I looked it up and... Austin, I'll let you explain. Oh, man. I'll let me explain it. (laughs) Sean Penn plays a dad who had sex with a homeless woman uh and had uh, and then and then the woman got pregnant and the the, he kept the baby. But he has a severe intellectual disability and has the intelligence of a seven year old. That is what they say in the movie. And Mm -hmm. so the movie is the courts taking the daughter away, played by Dakota Fanning, and then he has to try and get her back. And it is watching the trailer for it it's the most confusing movie because it is a very like serious movie but then there's just like quirky piano in there and it's i don't know that i don't know the aesthetic they're going for in it let me tell you please what i if just watch find any old comedian back when everything was much more lax than it needed to be doing an impression of someone with a mental disability now picture Sean Penn doing that in a serious role. <laughs> it's not. It's not good. Oh, <laughs> so, I had some emotion. <laughs> he makes some choices that I'm like watching it. I'm like, what? Are you you know what? You, I think uh, there's a- my, my heart was my heart was hurting because I was feeling emotions just because of how confused I was. It's oh man. There's a quote it's, it's, from a movie. With uh, Tropic Thunder, yeah, yeah, we're not gonna say it. Yep, don't say it. Yep, there Just it is. Just don't say it. Yeah, you but know the everyone quote. knows it. You know the quote. <laughs> Leave you it. You know the quote. The quote Leave it. And it's true. That's what he did. He went way too far with it. <laughs> yes, he did. Uh, it's uncomfortable. You know what? Shia LaBeouf did True Confessions. So, oh yeah, and he did. He did another movie. Um, <laughs> uh, Disney movie. I can't remember what it was called. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, it's true. Oh, is that the one? It, it, it's True Diaries. I think is what it's called. It doesn't matter. But the he plays. I think twin. he plays yeah. someone. Yeah, he plays someone with an intellectual disability. Bold choice for someone so early in their career. Bold choice for someone so late in their career, like Sean Penn. <laughs> Regardless, hey, she was excited God. to work. Leo did it. Leo did it at 15. <sighs> that's yeah, true. That just, that's an Oscar. That's an Oscar worthy performance. That was the I'll springboard. That was the freaking springboard. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. So take notes, Sean. <laughs> let's Penn. get back to Shania Twain and just <laughs> leave this movie in whatever year that this came out. Like t- two thousand, doesn't matter. Uh, she was excited to be working with a big time actor, but not even Sean's name could help the album. Even with the exception of the album finding traction in some cities, it was something of a dud. And if you listen to the album, you can hear that it sounds about ten years too late. It has a very like Dolly Parton. Uh, Tammy Wynette feel. Who's Tammy Wynette? Oh, come on. You know who Tammy Wynette is. I have no idea. I can guarantee you do. And and I'll, I'll you prove it to you right now. Sing it. Stand by a man. Oh, actually, I do know who that is. Thank you. Oh, yeah, uh, everybody does. That's Tammy Wynette. Yeah. Nice. I like that song. <laughs> it's a good song. See, you know. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, that's I mean, it's it's, it's that it's just a country album, whatever. Mm-hmm. The label decided that they were going to continue pushing the album with a 16 date tour around the US, but they knew that the album couldn't perform well on its own. So they decided to make what they called a showcase tour consisting of three new acts on the label. In the end, Shania Twain, John Brannon, and Toby Keith went out on tour together to cities around the US where they were making the biggest impact. It was a small show with each performer having 20 to 30 minutes to perform their set. It was all bar scenes where the tickets were never more expensive than $10 at the door. It does have to be pretty surreal to see these two people and John perform at bars and then see them literally anywhere you can think of pretty shortly after. Yeah, they blow up very fast after this. But at the same time, they didn't. I mean, they had no hits. Toby got one during the tour, but he definitely blows up the most. Yeah. Shania still takes a while. Yeah, she's still of a slower burn, which is what you want. Because if you blow yeah. up too quick, suddenly you're getting songs about American soldiers. You're getting songs about <laughs> Red Solo Cups. Soldier. You're, ta- uh. you're getting songs about how I want to talk about me. I mean, it just it snowballs and it's tough. I want to talk, talk about, about me. me. I want to talk, talk about. about I want to talk about double what? Oh my, me, I my. know that one. Well, I think what I like, what I know, what I want, what I see. <laughs> I like talking about you, 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 once in a while. All right. (laughs) (laughs) And to make matters worse, there's only one band for the three of them, Toby's backup band. With some nights, Shania actually singing to pre-recorded background instruments, like a karaoke version of her own songs. God, that'd be such a mood killer because... I mean, these songs aren't even songs you wrote. They're songs that Nashville wrote for you. Yep. Yeah. Terrible. I thought you I thought you meant for a minute the audience, because also, yes. That's a buzzkill. Yeah. It all sucks. <laughs> <laughs> they traveled together and did their sets back to back to back. It was a really tough time for the three of them, but it actually fared well for Toby, like we said, because his song, his single, Should Have Been a Cowboy, began gaining a lot of traction while he was on this tour. And that helped a little bit. That helped kind of bring in more audiences, which helped for John and Shania. But for Shania, it basically just helped her tread water. And then it killed John Brandon's career for almost a decade. Honestly, didn't even know who John Brandon was, but apparently wrote a song for the Eagles. So hmm. good for him. I didn't know that. Yeah, I had to I had to look him up, too. And it's it's sad he never really got the recognition. But apparently he pulled himself up by the bootstraps because he was the head of the CIA from 2013 to 2017. Oh, yeah. you spelt it wrong. <laughs> Hey, Austin, you want to get your phone out and play that gunshot sound again? Because God damn it. (laughs) Yes, that is. I don't know what you're talking about. You are so close. Brother. That is John Brennan, who you're. (laughs) Terrible CIA director. Uh, But luckily, the two were. Yeah, but it was close enough. (laughs) Good enough for a joke. I'll take it. The tour would not matter for Shania soon because her video for What Made You Say That had made it to CMT UK, where it was much more well-received than in the States because the UK is just all around cooler than the US, but it caught the attention of a man who would propel Shania's career to superstardom. And I, of course, am talking about producer extraordinaire Robert John Mutt Lang. Well, he looks like a purebred to me. Is that a grenade launcher? <laughs> you brought your what GPL. is that? Hell yeah. 
you know what? Door I just closed it as I leave the room, man. I just realized it probably sounds great on the recording. It probably you're so close to the mic that it mutes it over Zoom, so it's gonna sound fine. It's that gonna one's sound gonna fine. sound probably bad. <laughs> That's good. I like my shit to be gained out. Peaking I will promise you, I tested it before we started, and it sounds great. That's why I was confused when you guys said it was too quiet. I was like, oh fuck. Perfect. Just edit out all our parts. It doesn't matter. <laughs> yes, Fine. Robert John Mutt Lang, or Mutt Lang as we will refer to him for the rest of the episode and how he refers to himself, was a producer who was famous for taking acts like Brian Adams in Def Leppard from small little bar acts to household names. He also produced for Savoy Brown, ACDC, Foreigner, The Cars, Michael Bolton, Nickelback, Maroon 5, and Muse. Huge, Wildly famous. Hugely popular producer. <laughs> yes. This guy has one of the longest lists of platinum and diamond albums out there. And we actually aren't going to be covering him much on this episode because we are going to do a side episode of just him next week. So look out for that. Yeah, I keep swinging and missing tonight. I was looking more into him and I was going to make some kind of joke on whether we think the red face is rosacea or alcoholism. (laughs) But apparently she's a teetotaler, which is someone who explicitly (gasps) abstains from alcohol. Oh, yeah. So point taken universe. He's he's like a vegan. (laughs) I'm sorry. 100% vegan. Yeah. No smoking, no drinking, no drugs. And he's huge into the yoga Mm -hmm. to the point where he convinced multiple people to follow his ways. I think one of the members of Def Leppard did it. I think a couple people on the tours did it for Shania. Very influential man. They had alcohol-free champagne at their wedding. I'm sorry. (laughs) I just wanted to make a cheap joke. (laughs) You you went for it, man, and Mutt got the last laugh here. I deserve that. (laughs) So Mutt, as he preferred to be called, was in the studio in London with CMT on in the background. The video for What Made You Say That came on, and Mutt was instantly enamored by this young woman in the tube top. He thought she was beautiful and talented and had to get to know her more. So he got in touch with Mercury and was eventually put in touch with Mary Bailey, who he talked to, gaining her trust so that he could get in touch with Shania. And eventually they made a connection, albeit it was just over the phone at the time. And Shania didn't even know who Mutt Lang was outside the fact that he was some producer. He was super private about his life. So not many people in the normal world really knew who he was. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like a pretty humble move because they corresponded for quite a while and he never once like name dropped who he's working with or really hinted any indication of who he was yeah it was a it was a unique it was it was a cool way to do it i'll say that mutt lang i mean he's a good guy through the whole story he makes one mistake that kind of ruins everything we'll get into that obviously in the next episode but it just seems like he's like this super down-to-earth guy Look up Mutt Lang, current wife. <laughs> wow, there we go. You'll figure it out You'll, so fi- fast. you'll yeah. figure it out pretty quick. <laughs> yeah, they began to talk every day for hours, talking about themselves and about each other. And one cool, like I said, one cool thing that he did is that she would call him when when they could talk. She would call him and he was still in London. And so she would call him and then immediately he would say, okay, hang up the phone. And then he would hang up, they would hang up the phone and then he would call her back because it was all long distance mm-hmm. charges. So then he would foot the bill for all the charges so that she didn't have to. Like that's like, that's just kind of the thing that he would do yeah. is he was always so, uh, hum- or he was always so like, he was looking out for Shania in every aspect. Like we probably, if, for any younger listeners, 
this was a real thing back then. Long distance calls. Well, we mentioned <laughs> in the first episode, the, the uh, Sharon doing it like screwed the family out of meals because yeah. she would make oh, yeah. these long distance calls. It's like dollars a minute. Yeah, it's expensive <laughs> as shit. They would talk Very for expensive. hours. Yeah, it's nuts. So Mutt would ask Shania to play tracks over the phone live with just her singing and playing guitar. And then she would ask to hear what he was working on. And so he would show her early versions of some of the songs that would become huge hits later on like michael bolton's song said i loved you but i lied uh, who is, is that michael bolton over there give me a break <laughs> that's the very beginning of that song huh. <laughs> he lets it he lets it go for a while i probably didn't get quite the right flow on the on the uh, vowels you but know what it was perfect you to get me. the picture Thank you, Mutt, for that. <laughs> they agreed to work together after the first phone call where they would mail demos back and forth, all without Mercury even knowing. Eventually, Mutt and Shania agreed to meet up at the Nashville Fan Fair, a big event in Nashville where big and small country acts alike would come together to meet fans, market their music, and then meet other musicians. And it actually still continues currently, though it's been rebranded. I think it's been rebranded. It may have been called this before, but it's now referred to as the CMA Fest. And I'm guessing it's much less accessible than it was 30 years ago. I'll tell you right. It did rebrand to CMA Fest. In 2015, it sold out seven months in advance. Its highest recorded capacity was in 2007 at 191,000 people attending. It's pretty big. Jesus. It's also been going since 72, which is... it's a, that's so long. Very long. That's when <laughs> that's when George Jones and Waylon Jennings and 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 and, and, and every like all the all the old country acts were doing their thing. Yep. So yeah. but I definitely feel like <clears throat> now it's not like it's not like no. a conference or a or or a convention. It's not like a country convention. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Where you just go like shake uh Jason Aldean's hand. Like, yeah. I think it's just people coming and perform now. So it's like that's why yeah. I meant by a little bit less accessible. But gotcha. all the same, Mutt and Brian traveled to Nashville to attend the festival, which had an attendance of twenty five thousand people in nineteen ninety three. And I couldn't find if Mutt was in Canada helping Brian Adams, who is a Canadian resident, uh if he was recording there or if Brian had traveled to London to be with Mutt, but regardless, they found themselves in Nashville in June 1993. Just found themselves in Nashville. No one knows what happened. Was Mutt in Canada? Was Brian in London? No one knows. There's a 60-minute special on it. Is there really? No. <laughs> right. I'll, right. I'll you fuck lie, myself. Then. If you lie to our audience one more time, not only will you be off this show, you will be off this earth. Mahalo. Mahalo. <laughs> Mahalo. <laughs> Brian, who hated country music, decided to bail on Mutt once they got there so he could go schmooze it up with some people. And Mutt set out to look for Shania, who was like kind of tucked away as she was still a small act in comparison to the other people who were there. And just as a fun little side note, Billy Ray Cyrus performed his hit, Achy Breaky Heart, at that year's event. And he actually got Brian up on stage to sing with him, which made big headlines. And it was all because he was forced to go there with Mutt. Wouldn't even be the last time that Billy and Brian worked together either. I was trying to find videos from this event because I wanted to see how it sounded because I assumed that like Brian sounded terrible trying to sing the song. And uh, they did a song together called Hey Elvis. <laughs> that, good so, to know. Yeah. That's kind of fun. How about that? Yeah. Anyway, 
I put I put anyway in the script like I was already done with Ethan's quote. <laughs> How about that? When Martin Shania first met, it was like love at first sight, but not really even in a sexual way. Like they both just met and feel like they had known each other forever. It was almost like this companionship that they connected immediately. And their phone conversations translated into real conversations seamlessly. They had been building this though because they had been talking for a couple of months and like you said, out like she basically said she'd get off stage, go to her hotel room and call him and they would pretty much talk till the morning. Yeah, like until she fell asleep or whatever, they would just chat and and it was all it wasn't like professional at first, but it also wasn't like super personal. It was just kind of like, you know, a little mixture, but then it yeah. eventually just got into them knowing each other more and more and and it kind of progressed into what what becomes their relationship. It really just started as two artists. Exactly. Talking artist artists, yeah. Yep. Yeah, Shania had never even seen Mutt before this moment and she was expecting some big fat guy, but instead what she saw was a fit, handsome, rich South African producer with long curly blonde hair. Wow. It was a match made in heaven. Wow. A match with a man 17 years her senior. Yeah, but it's just a number at this point. As a matter. <laughs> Their friendship was strong and eventually built into a real romantic relationship. Unfortunately, by this point, she and Paul were engaged. So Shania had a decision to make. And so she decided to break it off with Paul to be with Mutt. She broke it off and Paul, who actually went back to Timmins because he couldn't find any more work in Huntsville, basically just stayed there and became a resident local. Then Mutt and Shania could be together. In the garden surrounding his beautiful stone cottage (laughs) nestled in an ivy thicket at the basin of a valley in the London countryside, or perhaps on the patio overlooking the Mediterranean Sea at his hillside mansion in Spain. The possibilities are literally endless. You just have to wonder... (laughs) I wonder what Mutt Lang's net worth is. You have to wonder that. I wish someone would tell us. I wish somebody would tell us later in the episode. Later in the episode. I wonder if someone could tell us later. Like, there's a sentence in here. I promise. You're going to know soon. Oh, I had no idea. I had no idea. That's the joke, Ethan. That's the joke. I got it. Clearly. They were already working together with Mutt teaching Shania how to improve her lyric writing, taking it from a more passive place to an active place, putting herself in the driver's seat. One of the main and most clear examples of this is changing the lyric for one of her songs from this man of mine to any man of mine. It made it so that she wasn't locked down and could get anyone. In homecoming, she actually showed her journal with lyrics <laughs> and it shows where she'd write and he would strike out and make changes to her lyrics in the journal. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Kind of shared journals, kind of cute without knowing it ends in divorce. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it's all about the journey. It doesn't matter. It's sad that they ended up. Life is a journey, not a destination. That's right. Life's a dance you learn as you go. Yeah, sure. I'll take your word for it. It was an empowering <laughs> lyric instead of a passive safe lyric, the any man of mine instead of the this man of mine. He also showed her how to rearrange her songs, making them more unique. Mutt thought that Nashville was getting a little stale for Shania, so he flew her over to Europe for a change of scenery so that they could be inspired. They could relax in one of Mutt's many homes, as Austin implied, and focus on writing. I don't know if you guys know this or not, but he has a net worth of $225 million. My God. We've been laying it on pretty thick, and it's so nice to finally be able to put a figure to it. (laughs) 
There's a dollar amount for it. Yeah. Oh, that is a that's quite a bit of money. It's a good that's chunk a lot. of change. <laughs> that's nuts because he's just I don't he, he wasn't even like well off as a kid. He oh. didn't even get like the Trump treatment. Like he just was Self-made? got rich on his own. Uh, oh, this guy's ear for music. It's crazy. It's something. <laughs> it's crazy. We'll get into a little bit this episode. We'll get we'll get way more into it in the in the news episode when we talk about it. Uh, but it's this guy's nuts. Yeah. <laughs> so she went back home to Timmins to perform there on September 21st. But realizing she was still shaky on stage, they decided to lay low and only focus on writing. They went to Paris together, where Mutt proposed, and on December 28th, 1993, the two were married. At Deerhurst to a small crowd. The proposal is a nice little heartwarming story. Mutt brought all her siblings with them to Paris and Shania swore up and down. She had no idea despite her entire family going with them to Paris. She did have questions about it, she said. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, he'd been married twice before, so he's just getting better and better at proposals. I just, honestly, I just can't believe that they didn't get married at Squirrel Taint. Must have been booked that weekend. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the backup was Badgerfoot, and that was also booked. It's crazy, yeah. D- December 28th is a busy busy wedding day, I suppose. Uh, they, had to, they just stick with Deerhurst. Canada. Yep. Bummer. <laughs> so now Shania Bummer. was married to a fit, handsome, rich South African producer with long, curly, blonde hair, and her career was about to take off because of it. Hey, let's let's not take any credit away from Shania. Let's cut her some slack. She's extremely talented, and she is extremely <laughs> hot. Oh, my God. Cut the fucking hose. He's out of control. Yeah, he said, you need to go take a cold shower or something? Yeah, you take, take a break. Or I'm right, man. <laughs> God. Uh, that's actually- Cut the feed for a minute. I do want to play off of that for a second because Shania said that she never felt comfortable like taking Mutt's money. Like she always felt that she always felt that she- needed to make her own money so when they were living together when they were doing things together she never felt comfortable with him buying her really nice things and she only lived within her means until she kind of got to this super rich point and felt that she had Mm. earned her own money then it was comfortable then they could be comfortable cohabitating in that way strong independent woman exactly yeah so after the wedding the couple took some time for their honeymoon to relax, all while casually doing some pre-production on some new songs, but nothing too official. Remember, Shania was going to have to run whatever they did by the label, specifically Luke Lewis. And Nashville is not going to be happy about the idea of one of their artists working with Mr. She Told Me to Come, but I was already there. <laughs> it's a, He's a bit of an outsider. Yeah. Luckily, though. Yep. He's- Dark horse. <laughs> uh, yes, she 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 got. I think the perfect person to okay this. Luke Lewis was a bit of an outsider himself, mm. as we will get to in a minute. Shania was worried that after the failure of her first album, the label was going to be even more insistent that they be in charge of choosing the songs for her next album. She was worried that the leash was going to be as short as it could possibly be. But in a stroke of luck, Luke was unusually hands off for the artist in his label, and he was a outsider, as we just said. He asked her what she was doing and for a timeline on when she was going to get around to recording again. And she said that she was working on it and just needed a little bit more time, which he was totally fine with. This seems really out of character for a person who's managing an artist who just released an album that really didn't do a whole lot. Yeah. Yeah, it does not sound like the biz. I think, I really think that Luke Lewis was someone more rock oriented um, in the past. I, I'll have to look it up and I can, I could, if I'm dead off, I'm way off here, I can correct myself but i think he was someone who was more rock oriented before he came to nashville because it, it, what he's it sounds like he's a rock manager like a rock la- label mm. owner someone who is more hands off someone who is like 
very cool with whatever's going on, doesn't need the timelines necessarily. Whereas yeah. as we've seen with John Denver and with Waylon Jennings, the two other country artists that we've we've <sighs> done, it's just all about business. It's like get in the studio, yep. get it done, get in the studio, get it done. Like this is so different. And that's why Luke Lewis is an outsider. So he knew that she and Mutt were together, but he didn't put two and two together that he was helping her or he did, but he didn't know the extent of what they were doing. So in 1994, she finally went to Luke's office and sat down with him. She let him know that she had been working on some stuff with Mutt and they basically had an entire album ready to record. She was nervous that Luke was going to tell her that she had to stick with one of the industry producers to maintain the radio ready sound. But instead, Luke who, like I said, was a bit of a rock guy, loved the idea of these songs, even though he hadn't actually heard anything yet. It's going to have that mutt magic on it. Oh, that that repertoire definitely talks. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. They then had to sell the idea to everyone else at Mercury. Mutt's budget was far above the Nashville standard of $150,000 to $200,000. So Mutt decided that he was going to lean into this and he was going to tell the label that anything above $200,000, he would pay for himself. And you're probably thinking, oh, it can't end up being that much more than $200,000 in the end. But I will tell you, if you double it, you're not even close. (laughs) That is 100% correct. I think that I really think that he offered to pay anything above it almost as like he's going to put all his chips on this because basically Mercury is going to get an album for $200,000 total like they don't mm-hmm. know what they're getting but they are just going to get an album that that cost them two hundred thousand dollars it doesn't matter if in the end it costs a ton more than that or if it doesn't like they know that they're going to pay this amount they're probably going to make their money back in the end and um, especially with having like a behemoth producer as mutt lang at the helm like they're they're just going to okay it because they're they're it's a pretty safe bet for them yeah to, to have him do it and not have to worry about it literally zero chance they don't at least break even exactly so it's not a big deal at all. The label agreed, but it was they were still a little hesitant to do so because it was they were still taking a bet, but it was a pretty safe bet. You know, with the stigma alone of not having a Nashville producer on a Nashville album, that this album is going to be fighting a bit of an uphill battle. Oh, buddy. Oh, yeah, most definitely. I might be wrong, but I think they put Nora Wilson on as like a producer, though he didn't do much. But I think I thought they tried to do that to kind of get ahead of this effect, but doesn't exactly work. <laughs> yeah, I think you're correct. I think that they put him in there just to be a, a Nashville voice, but yeah. he had such little impact on it yep. that it wasn't even <laughs> worth mentioning. It was all, it was the Mutt show when they got in there. And the reason they put him on was because Mutt had never produced a country album before. So he spent some time researching country music and found the best musicians in town, which he got for the studio. Then in mid-1994, he went and bought the biggest hat he could find, and they went into soundstage studios ready to record. Did he actually buy the biggest hat he could find? Nah, he's just a country boy. I was just making a joke. <laughs> I think Austin put it in there. I put it in there. <laughs> <laughs> That's very good joke. So uh, if you didn't know, soundstage studios has produced more than 500 number one single since it was opened in 1970 by Mercury Records. So it's a pretty big deal. That's insane. I'm really bummed this is the outline you chose to read back through. (laughs) (laughs) Let's go. Let's go. 
I was so ready for that one to happen. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, and it was there as well as four other studios that they recorded for months. Mutt was a master at producing, and he could hear the best parts for the album before they were ever played on an instrument. Yeah, Mutt has perfect pitch, and that's not just in regard to music. He can hear the ka-ching of big money from four houses down. You know what I mean? Mm, yeah, I know what you mean. Here, I'll give you... You know what I mean, but I'm going to give you an example anyway. Please. Yeah. Apparently, man, I feel like a woman was just a line that Shania playfully threw out while he was working on a part and without like looking or anything, he just held his thumbs up and nodded like... The man knew instantly, okay, it's a good line, but not only is it a good line, that has just unlimited potential God. marketability. Yes, like it's, it's an anthem. <laughs> Freaking genius. It's insane how good <laughs> yeah. he was. Yeah. Yeah. And when you pair that with the most talented people in town, magic was bound to happen. The formula for this album was so different than what the musicians and label were used to. They always get in, record as fast as you can with a natural live sound, and then get out. But Mutt was a rock producer, and rock producers take way more time. They add layers, they add auxiliary instruments, and they make the players play until they got the part perfect, even if it took days. If you've got 13 minutes to spare, go to YouTube, find the, it's a 13-minute mix-down explanation of Photograph by Def Leppard, mm -hmm. which Mutt produced. It's, it's so cool because it shows how many different layers there are in the song that at face value sounds really simple, but listening through it, it's... It's not. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, we've used the phrase wall of sound countless times already on here, but that is mutt all the way and all. Yeah. Like his mixes are all so giant. They're huge. Yes. And we have to thank Mr. Ghoul himself, Phil Spector, for that <laughs> wall of sound. We do. Uh, Gosh. Uh, which eye are we looking don't, at? Yeah. Don't want to thank him, but yeah, you know. suppose you do have to for that one. Yeah. He would... Uh, Mutt would make players play over and over again, not even realizing that he could be physically hurting them. One example is when he made the fiddle player, Rob Hajakos. Does that sound good? Yeah. Uh, I would say Hajakos, but that sounds dumb. I'm going to stick with mine and we'll, we'll figure it out. Hajakos. Uh, yeah. Hajakos. Okay, yeah, I'll take that. I uh, like when he made the fiddle player, Rob Hajakos, play a single part for two hours. And apparently, I don't know, holding a violin underneath your chin for that long is... Very painful. Yeah, I can't <laughs> imagine standing there for hours holding, like, imagine, because you get that muscle on the back, it'd be oh. a one-sided pain mm. you get from holding down the violin on one side yeah. for that long? No yeah. way. No. Count me out. Hurts to think about. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Mutt didn't even realize that he was doing any of this, though, because he would just get lost in the creation of the music, and he would lose track of time and of takes. Like, in one instance, Paul Liam, the drummer, was doing take after take and just wasn't able to get the intro part just how Mutt wanted it. After many takes, he cried out in frustration, and then he counted off, three, four, five, and the song started. And for the first time, it was perfect. And Mutt liked it so much that he left the scream and the count in and that's how the song if you're not in it for love i'm out of here begins no mistakes just happy accidents yep exactly. that's why i love doing this so much because i always thought that part sounded like it was done comically but as soon as you know that he was like 
about to have a mental breakdown and listen back to it, it sounds like he's at his wit's end. Listen, oh. three, four, five isn't even a real count. Yeah, that's he what I said. Too. Like, that's he the weirdest numbers to pick. Two, three, four, because the think. song's in four, four, but he was literally too worked up and he forgot how to count as a session drummer. But work these guys ever. But work these guys to the bone to make a perfect album. And Shania would have a ton of input on the tracks as well. Mutt took the lead on production for obvious reasons, but he welcomed Shania's input, which made her so much more attached to her own album. And so finally, after months in the studio, they wrapped up and sent it off to be mixed and mastered. It was shown to the record execs, and the reaction they had was initially mixed, to put it mildly. They were worried that it didn't sound like a country album. Even though country was beginning to be more rockified, they were worried that this was taking it too far into the pop rock direction. God, does it end up being so right. Yeah, little did they know, they were... They were on the cutting edge of music here. Mm -hmm. They went ahead with it as it was a completely finished album. And in the end, it cost almost $700,000. Like we said, though, Mercury only paid $200,000 of it. That's absolutely batshit insane. Yeah. Yeah, it turns out if you tripled the figure, you were wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was a very expensive album. They tried to market it by sending the single any man of mine to country bars that would be played for line dancers. But the dancers actually got confused because if you know the song, the verses are a standard for line dances with the. But then when the chorus comes in, it takes it to a two-step feel, which was unexpected for the dancers. They weren't used to having both in the same song. So they ended up going with the song, Whose Bed Have Your Boots Been Under instead, because it had a more straightforward country feel. Man, 10 years old. Playing with Bionicles in my grandmother's basement, screeching who's bed to the radio. Or not. It did not have to be on. <laughs> you could have been singing it right in your head. Alone. Do you, didn't matter. That's a song you hear once and it sticks in your head. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is an anthem. It's awesome. <laughs> it was released as a single on January 2nd and showed the same struggle that their last album had done with stations not wanting to play the song for its more pop feel. It's so weird to hear this almost 30 years down the road that there was even a struggle for this song. It's it's a staple now. Absolutely, yeah. She went on a radio station tour to talk to stations, do an interview for them, and then allowed the song to be played while she was there to talk about it. But even that barely helped. But All the same, a month later, on February 2nd, 1995, The Woman in Me was released. It fared better than the single, with it doing well once it was released, climbing the charts all the way up to number six in Canada and number five in the US, though it did chart at number one on the country list in both countries. And to date, it has sold somewhere in the ballpark of 14 million copies. But it was a crawl to get all the way up there. Luke Lewis actually had to practically beg the stations that were playing her album to keep playing it, knowing that it would just take a little bit more time before the singles would start to hit. And eventually, he was exactly right. It was already a struggle just getting them played widely in the first place, because exactly like Ethan said... Even radio DJs were hesitant to give airtime to a country artist that wasn't produced by a Nashville producer in Nashville. So then they had to mm-hmm. fight to keep them playing after that. So crazy. Such a weird political system that we will I was, yeah. get into way more. Uh, weird yeah. politics. Yeah. In the end, the album had eight singles. Those were Whose Bed Have Your Boots Been Under, 
Any Man of Mine, which was actually her first top 10 hit, even though it didn't do well at first, it was her first top 10 hit. The Woman in Me Needs a Man Like You. If you're not in it for love, I'm out of here. You win my love. No one needs to know. The home ain't where his heart is anymore. And God bless this child. That sounds like so many hits, but the craziest thing is that is not even half no. of her huge no. hits. No. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what, nope. makes, what makes it so impressive, though, is that there were only 12 tracks on the whole album. So over the next year and a half, they would release another single as soon as the one before it started to slow down. So the public was basically getting bombarded with Shania Twain for 18 plus months. 66% of this album made it to be a single. A quick comparison to another Muttling (laughs) produced album Back in Black by ACDC only produced four singles out of ten tracks and actually has performed better than this album, but (laughs) not near as many singles. Yeah, but it's crazy, though, because... I mean, I feel like every song on that album is instantly recognizable. Yeah. <laughs> Even though it's not a single. And uh, just wait till you hear about the sequel. Oh, For Those About to Rock is an incredible <laughs> album, no doubt. I hate you. <laughs> Love that album, man. I hate you. Of course, oh, yes. of course, I'm talking about Shania's follow-up album. Give me a break. I think we're switching to ACDC now, so strap in for <laughs> another three so hours right here. Just end it. This is it. <laughs> ACDC, next episode. Uh, but in a surprising move, Shania chose not to tour this album as she was afraid that she would only be able to sing the one album. And she didn't want to go on tour until she could fill an hour to 90 minutes with back-to-back hits. She had a band lined up and had done shows on television for shows like The Late Show with Jay Leno and Live with Regis and Kathy Lee, but at the last minute pulled out of a tour opening for Neil McCoy of the song Billy's Got His Beer Goggles On fame. Don't know if you guys know that song. <laughs> no. Great song. And Billy's Got His Beer, beer Goggles, goggles On. on. <laughs> Billy's at the bar. Nope. Been there all night. What a tune. <laughs> it's a great song. Go look it up. Uh, the other person that she would be opening for is Winona Ryder. So that's a huge thing to pass up. Did Winona Ryder do music? Yeah, I didn't. I looked. I looked for her stuff and I couldn't even find it because I'd never heard this before. I don't know. That's what they said in the book. That's weird. I didn't look it up. It wasn't like Winona Judd. It could have been Winona Judd. I thought it said. But I'm almost certain the book said maybe it was Winona Judd. Yeah, maybe. That would make a lot of sense to me. (laughs) (laughs) I'll say this line one more time. (laughs) Yeah, we'll just do this. And Winona Judd. Uh, You want me to name off some other people? For Reba (laughs) McIntyre. Okay. Uh, The tour was meant to begin in late August when the album was steadily climbing with four of the singles out. And it was thought that she would make about $15,000 per performance. But she turned it all down. And then Luke Lewis had to go tell the people at Mercury that she was declining a tour to begin work on her next album, which was met with initially less than enthused reactions. Oh, I'm sure it was like putting them all in an airlock on Skylab and opening the hatch. The idea of not going out and making as much money for the label as possible. That's not going to fly. Yeah. God. Yeah. It was like. 
it was such a weird move. But I mean, it wasn't like going to kill the album financially to not do a tour because it was doing well on its own. But it did slow the growth of it and it slowed the marketing for it. Uh, but clearly, the album didn't need much help. It's almost unheard of for an album to be this successful without a backing tour. <laughs> it's yeah. pretty crazy. Yeah. But yeah. even with the lack of touring, The Woman and Me was becoming a huge album. And with a successful album, there comes teams of people that come in and help out. And unfortunately, once the album got big, Shania had to make the decision to get rid of her longtime friend and manager, Mary Bailey, who had helped her emotionally and financially whenever she could, driving her places, paying for things, and always sticking her neck out for Shania. Remember, it was the phone call with Mary Bailey that kept Shania in the music scene at all. Sadly, a very common occurrence in the music. We've already seen it once or twice throughout the podcast. Someone close to the artist takes the role of manager and then gets the boot once the big time hits. Yeah, yeah. it's pretty rough. Yeah, now that Shania was a huge music star, she felt that that Mary was failing under the immense pressure that she was under. It went from her making phone calls all day, just trying to get her spots on shows to play or even just talk to Mary getting over a hundred calls per day from people who wanted Shania and Shania didn't think that Mary could handle it. So she and Mary split on not great terms. Mary was extremely hurt by this and her husband even explored legal options. But in the end, Mary made the decision to not pursue any of that, just let by bygones be bygones, and then she pursued a half-hearted attempt to manage other bands before she retired altogether. They did eventually patch things up and seem to be closer than ever. So, And I think that Mary Bailey got some money from this album and the next album, made her a lot of money. Nice. Go for her. Yeah, go for her. I mean, why not? Go for her. And on top of that... They had issues of having to deal with a lot of hate within the Nashville community for her unique approach to her career. They didn't like that she wrote her own songs, that she used Mud as a producer, and that she wasn't touring. There were a lot of jobs that were taken away because of the things she did in-house or on her own terms. I'm sure many studio musician union grievances were filed against Shania Twain. I believe that that is probably correct, yes. Yeah. I actually looked it up. I couldn't find any, but I'm sure they existed. It, it probably all went pretty under the radar, but mm. or, or pretty off the books or whatever. Because, I mean, technically she didn't do anything wrong. She just did things like her own way. I'm not, I'm not even going to say like she did things shady because she literally just did it her own way. Yep. It just wasn't the Nashville way. Yeah. yeah. And, and they did not like it. Nope. So what happened that showed just how petty the Music City really was? And more importantly, just how much did Shania not care? Well, you're going to have to come back for part three of Shania Twain to find out. Come on. Heck, y'all. I'm going to say right here, we need to stop saying ever like any clue on how many parts any series will be. Yeah, yeah. We're we never know. right. We just need to start with this is going to be a one part series until it's not. And then it'll <laughs> be, be two. however long it maybe is. Maybe three, yeah. maybe four, maybe five. <laughs> yeah. Who knows? We'll see what happens. We'll yeah. see what happens. We were at, at the beginning of our, our time as a podcast. We had this strict, rigid. If you go back and listen to our Guns and Roses, we only wanted to do three parts. And so we said we, we kind of to yada yada about 20 years of Guns N' Roses history we said this part doesn't matter this part doesn't matter anyway they're gonna go on tour again anyway. um 
And but now we're like, if this takes a little bit of time, that's fine because guess what? Yeah. We're going to be here for as long as it takes. So if the more information we can give you guys, the better. And that's all we really care about. We are absolutely playing the long game here. We're waiting for the following to pick up in a few years and yeah, have plenty yeah. of back catalog Bingo. to go through. So you know how much material. easier it is for us to do more parts because that's less reading and amount of time oh, yeah. we have to do. No so kidding. it actually it's is easier simpler. for us to do more parts. <laughs> But there is so much. There is such a thing as too many parts. But we'll figure that out when we get there. We'll, we'll there will be a series when we're like, maybe that one was a little long. <laughs> we'll see what happens. Once we get into our nine part Beatles series. Here. Oh god, oh, I'm fully, I'm fully anticipating to do a year for each or do a episode for each year they're together. Yeah. So I want to, I want to break that down to the day. That will be, that will be a big series. I'm very excited for it. Yeah. In the meantime, if you want to find us anywhere, you can do that. Uh, we are we're on in five on everything. Thing, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Ethan started posting again, and God bless him for Thank it. Thank you. Love we also it. have a website. Actually, cut that part. I'm not going to even talk about our website because <laughs> that thing's going to go away soon. I'll keep it in. Perfect. <laughs> we don't have a website, is what we have. Um, we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash on and five. If you want to give us some money, that money just goes to buying books, buying the hosting site, and then buying us a lot of booze. So yes. thank you. <laughs> just kidding. Um, we don't have enough to do it with. <laughs> I was actually I was actually sober tonight. I didn't drink tonight. Uh, cool. Good. I had a, no, like I said, I had a nice hot toddy. It's delicious. Um, oh, I wanted to say some one more thing. Oh, we're, we're thinking about investing your Patreon money into, yeah, into stocks. GameStop. We're going to get into the stock market. Into, yeah, we're going to GameStop. GameStop. <laughs> oh <my God>. uh, <laughs> AMC. Ethan, by the time this episode airs, GameStop could legitimately be out of business. Yeah, so. yeah it, it could be over. <laughs> Who knows? It's, crash yeah, it's probably going to be, the trend is going to be done. It's probably yeah, going to be done be like this week. <sighs> it's going to it's going to be a real roller coaster. We'll see what happens. Um, if you want to like and review us on iTunes or anywhere you listen to podcasts, that helps us get seen more, and we really appreciate it. If you do that and send us an image of you, your your screenshot of your review, we'll send you a little gift package. Ethan will write you a nice little note. Um, he'll yes, fart in the package if that's what yes, you're into. It doesn't matter. Whatever you figure out. <laughs> Whatever you uh, want, I suppose. Yeah. So I'll do it if you don't like it. We're going to leave it there, and we're going to find out what, what happens to Shania Twain and how she gets to be the most popular artist in country music for like a decade. It's incredible. God, some of you weren't there, but it happened. So, thank you, and we will talk to you on the next episode. I'll get you good. <laughs>